HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome. This is another episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insight with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And in the studio today with me, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Marion Nessel. Um, I barely need to give a bio for her, but I will anyway, just in case some of you have not fully absorbed all of the details of her incredible career. Um, Marion is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She is the author of several books, including Food Politics, which we will be talking about today, Safe Food, What to Eat, uh, and she writes the monthly food column, uh, Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle. She blogs daily at foodpolitics.com. She also wrote um, a book about um, pet foods and uh, Why Calories Count, which was the most recent publication, yeah? But today we're here to celebrate the 10th anniversary, Marion, of the publication of Food Politics, which has been reissued with a fantastic new foreword by Michael Pollan and a fantastic new afterword by Marion Nessel. And so <laughs> um, I'm excited to talk about this because that book was such a seminal book. It just it brought up the whole the idea that food and politics were uh, conjoined was evidently a revelation to most of the population, and you did so much to uncover exactly how that works. So since we're discussing that, what what actually catalyzed you to write this in the first place? And then you've updated it several times since then. Yeah, the uh, impetus for writing food politics was 
you know, as I trace it back, was going to a meeting in the early 90s at the National Cancer Institute, of all things, where um, the former Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, you know, the grand patriarch. Yes. Um, had, recently deceased. Too. Recently deceased. Had a meeting on behavioral causes of cancer, and the two behaviors were diet and smoking. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the meeting and sat through all of these presentations on smoking and cancer. And the present the presentations were a complete revelation to me. They were given by physicians who were fierce anti-smoking advocates. And they showed presentations, and it was back in the days of pre-PowerPoint days of slides. They showed slide after slide after slide of cigarette marketing in the high Himalayas and the jungles of Africa and the most remote places you could possibly think of. And then one of them gave a slide presentation on marketing to children. Mm -hmm. And it was slide after slide after slide of Joe Camel Mm -hmm. uh, being pushed on kids in places where kids hang out. And at the end of this, seeing these things, I mean, it wasn't, my revelation was, it wasn't that I didn't know that smoking was bad for you, and I didn't, I I certainly knew that cigarette companies advertised, but I had never noticed it before. Mm. I'd never paid any attention to it. And I turned to my fellow presenter, who happened to be Jane Brody of the New York Times, and said, you know, I think we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. Wow. And that was it. And that was it. I thought, I've never paid attention to this. I need to start paying attention to marketing. So I went out and started paying attention and started writing articles about marketing of foods. I was particularly distressed about marketing of foods to kids because all of these meetings on childhood obesity that I was going to were focused on how on earth are we going to get parents to feed their kids right? And nobody ever talked about how on earth are we going to get the food industry to stop pushing this junk food on our kids so it'll be a little easier to feed them right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a sabbatical coming up, so I thought I'll just take those articles and throw them together into a book. That's not quite how it worked out, um, but that was food politics. And the idea that food and politics came together was so bizarre and so uncomfortable that the publisher didn't get it. And the designer of the original, now iconic cover, has two different typefaces for food and for politics and did it deliberately because of the disjunction, what she saw as the disjunction between them. I thought it was gorgeous design. It is a great design. That's the one that I have. The the tomatoes (laughs) and the barcodes on the tomatoes. Yeah, Yeah, it was really nice. Absolutely. But since then, in your your newly uh, penned afterward, I see that you you know you you wax quite op- optimistic, um, and I'm I have to say I'm not quite as optimistic as you are, but um, some things have changed. So let's talk a little bit about what like the food marketing to children. There's been some progress on that, but I don't think anywhere near as much as you might have liked. I mean, I still see the same Cheeto ads on Nickelodeon. I mean, I you know I have a teenager at home. We still watch SpongeBob. I mean. <laughs> I mean, what the 10th anniversary edition did was to give me the chance to go back and reflect over what's happened during the last... Actually, it's 11 years, but who's counting? Um, uh, It's been 11 years since it first came out. Uh, 
And it really gave me a chance to kind of look back and start counting. So some mm-hmm. things you can count pretty easily. You can count the increase in the number of farmers markets. You yep. can count the increase in the number of community-supported agriculture programs, the increase in the amount of money that's spent on organics. You can count, I mean, for me, the really big one is to count the number of food studies programs at universities. Yeah, that's because very Because when we started food studies at NYU in 1996, there was one other place that had something remotely like it. And now every university is doing some kind of food program. And I think uh, even culinary schools are picking oh, up yeah. some of the cu- curriculum on that. The, absolutely, without yeah, question. Which is a big deal. And, you know, and that reflects this the really big change, which is the enormous interest in food issues mm-hmm. that has occurred since then. I'm not going to try to take credit for having done that, but it certainly contributed. I give Michael Pollan a lot of credit. Yes, I was going to say, I think so, between you and Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser, and that Eric was Schlosser. kind of the holy trinity of books that you know, just really changed public perceptions. And sort of put food on the yes. map as something that you could think about in a really serious way, and yeah. something that you could do politics around mm-hmm. and succeed in politics. So other kinds of changes are what's happened with school food. Yeah. I mean, not all schools have great food, but an awful lot of them do that didn't 10 years ago. Sure. I mean, Chef Bobo, one of your favorites, My favorite uh, has Chef done Bobo, a lot. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. and there have been many other. I mean, Bill Telepan and the mm-hmm. whole Wellness in the Schools And even program. the New York City school system. Yes. You know, and many other school systems as yes. well. So these are sort of countable ways. And, of course, the the big thing is what, what I call the food movement, yeah. um, you know, where thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals and groups are trying to fix the food system so it's healthier for people and the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, That's pretty exciting. It's really exciting. And I think that, um, much as I am a pessimist about certain things, I think that um, though there was a, you describe a lot of pushback from industry uh, trying to keep those changes at bay, certainly in terms of like vending machines in schools and ch- and changing, uh, you know, marketing and campaigns and so on. But at the same time, I think that there is a, a glimmer of um, awareness that if they don't get on board with these sort of healthier initiatives, that they are going to be, to a certain extent, losing market share. And there was a really interesting piece, which I saw quoted in Consumer Health Reports um, as I was coming out here, actually, which came out of the Hudson Institute, and I interviewed the... um, Oh, good. We can. I can see you rolling your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I interviewed that guy Hank Cardulo on this program, mm, and mm-hmm. he talks in in this study. He talked about how um, restaurants, which are offering healthier choices, are definitely seeing an increased market share, and that the way to lead industry uh, to better. Uh, you know, essentially better product is by the carrot, not by the stick. Yeah, he probably thinks that Coca-Cola's new campaign... He used to work for Coke. Yeah, that Coca-Cola's new campaign to market itself as a health food is a positive step forward. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, what I tried to do in the afterward to the new edition was to talk about the things that are going on and how hard the movement has to work to make progress because the pushback is so severe, with the best example being Bloomberg's soda cap, which just induced an explosion of opposition and also has induced um, the soda companies to spend a fortune. Nobody knows how much, but it's surely way up in the many, 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 many many millions millions, um, to try to defeat it. And, you know, they can keep fighting these things, but as the movement for healthier food 
gets stronger and bigger, I think these companies are going to have to start changing their practices in some way. Absolutely. Or because fewer people are buying, fewer people are drinking sodas. Yes. And fewer people, according to this Hudson Institute, are ordering French fries in restaurants. I mean, there are some messages that do seem to be penetrating the general public as well instead of just, and, and that's where I think, you know, the whole sort of food movement, as it, if you want to call it that, was uh, typically sort of branded as elitist. And I mm-hmm. think that, that that tar and feather job uh, is kind of going away because I think even in low-income populations, you know, they're starting to see the cause and effect of eating poorly and health issues that really plague the community, whether it's to children or older, you know, yeah, older and adults. I don't know I don't know anybody who's involved in the food movement who doesn't care deeply about getting better food to people who don't have enough money. Absolutely. I mean, that's where policy comes in yeah. um, because there's a reason why some foods are cheaper than others, and it's not because they uh, cost less to produce. Right. It's because they're subsidized because in all kinds of different already. ways. Absolutely. So, so um, but what about things like labeling calories in restaurant chains? Have you seen any data that shows that people choose lower calorie items over higher calorie items because well, they are now aware of yeah, what... Yeah, it depends on how you read the studies. And remember, mm-hmm. we're, the calorie labeling is an interesting... Pretty exa- new. It's an interesting example because even though... Um, President Obama signed it into national law in 2010. We're now in 2013, three years later, uh, and it still hasn't gone national. The rules still haven't come out. The White House is still holding it up is what I hear. Um, And uh, mainly because the pizza industry and the movie industry are fighting it so hard. Wow. Who knew? So it's that's where the politics comes in. Yeah. And the data, most of the studies have been done in New York City, which yes. put Cali labeling in. Right away. And the world didn't come to an end in 2008. <laughs> and people uh, continued to go to McDonald's and, and order And people continued to go to these places. And I would say it depends on how you read the studies. If you uh, Overall, they don't show much impact on average consumption. Mm -hmm. But there's a clear distinction between people who look at the calories and people who don't. I'm one of the ones who looks. It has a big impact on what I buy. Same here. A really big impact. But overall, it doesn't seem to. And so then, obviously, the next step is to get people to pay attention to it. But until it goes national, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I don't either. I, I, you know, I think people, you know, my daughter shops at Five Guys all the time. She eats Five Guys burgers. She loves them. And she tells me, she looks at the calorie count. But since she's skinny, (laughs) the fact that she's absorbing 4,000 calories in one meal, and I am not exaggerating, (laughs) she's like... Like, hey, how hot is that? <laughs> she thinks it's great. But for- <laughs> right. Wait until she becomes middle aged. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Once you hit thirty five, sweetie, that metabolism is over. It's over. I'm telling you from personal experience. Um, it is funny though. I mean, the way the kids respond to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, my daughter, of course, hears me talking about this stuff all the time. So uh-huh. she has a kind of weird um, synthesis of the natural teenage proclivities and at the same time she's, you know, sort of hardwired now well, to be I, you know, I, I don't, snotty about food choices. Yeah, teenagers would not be my favorite group for doing nutrition education. I, I think you try to lay it out for them and then wait 10 years. Yeah. Well, you hope that they develop an interest in it so that when, On they, their own. when they have their own family mm. or even in school, like it's boring mm. in school but then when you're out feeding yourself and you have your mm. first apartment and you have to like figure out how you're going to stretch your dollar and make yourself you can't eat at five guys all the time because mom ain't there to fork out the dough you know (laughs) 
it's not that cheap. Um, but listen, we have to take a very short break um, and have a sponsor drop. And I also want to take this moment to urge listeners, this is our membership drive month. Um, so please go to the website for heritageradionetwork.org and pledge a membership. It's only 60 bucks, and you get lots of benefits from it. And most importantly, you get to hear people like Dr. Marion Nessel on Mother's Day, who's willing to come in and chat with me about her fantastic book, Food Politics. So um, we'll just have a quick, short sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Marion Nessel. This, again, is an episode of What Doesn't Kill Ya. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill Ya, Food Industry Insight, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And in the studio with me today is Dr. Marion Nessel. We're talking about the 10th anniversary of her seminal book, Food Politics, which has just been reissued with a foreword by Michael Pollan and a brand new afterword by Marion herself. And one of the things when I was reading your afterword, Marion, was um, uh, you had a whole section on front of the box um, health claims, how uh, companies like Kellogg's, for instance, would take a breakfast cereal and they would add you know, one gram of fiber to a serving and and suddenly it's it's now a health food. Can we talk a little bit about how labeling works and, and what kinds of, um, I don't know, what consumers can do to sort of arm themselves against mm-hmm. those kinds of specious claims mm-hmm. and also whether there's any legislation that can be brought to bear that would mm-hmm. uh, limit the kinds of claims that uh, companies make? Yeah, well, it seems kind of incredible that we're still talking about this when yeah, the law that um, allowed health claims on food packages was passed in 1990. And um, when the Obama administration came in, the FDA announced that it was going to review the whole question of front of package labeling, and it was going to redo or re-examine yeah. the nutrition facts label. And have we heard anything no, about? No, we haven't. No, we have not. Five years not a later, thing. yeah. This is another thing that rumors are the White House is holding up because it's well, way too controversial. Well, is it the White House or is it or the Office of Management and Budget, which I understood? It's in the White House. It's in that's the, White the White House. House. I see. Office oh, so that's the, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying because that was they were the ones that held up a lot of the sort right. of um, new sort of initiatives to try to get things Yeah, going and the election is now over, yeah, so, so let's now, hope that the FDA will pick it up. Yeah. The FDA last week sent <clears throat> out some warning letters to places that had health claims that uh, were going a little bit far. Um, particularly, this was, a, I think, a product that had a supplement in it, and they were mm-hmm. claiming that it was uh, would cure disease and fix reduce Al- your cancer and fix alzheimer's and do everything and then so they they're not allowed to do that but it has to be pretty extreme before the fda is able to do anything about it at this point and that has to do with the courts because yeah. the courts intervened and congress passed laws um, that really have taken away the FDA's ability to regulate health claims in any serious way. Health claims sell food products. Yes. That's why companies want them so badly. Sure. And they deliberately put things into packages so they can make health claims well, for yeah, them. Well, yeah, like Otherwise, adding one gram bother? of fiber. You know, which otherwise, is... why bother? Yeah, 
Yeah, but I mean, adding one gram of fiber or adding, uh, you know, vitamin D or something, you know, like some mm. supplement like that, is that really going to change your life? No, it's not, but it does let them make those claims. And mm. I think it's and fascinating that they're still allowed to get away with that. Yeah, and even the most critical consumer, unless you stop dead in front of a product and take out your critical thinking skills, <laughs> is going to get fooled by this stuff yeah. because it's so seductive. Oh, great, I can eat that. It's healthy. Yeah, exactly. I can eat chocolate. It's got anti. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I consumed half a box of crackers recently because they were gluten free. There and then you I, go. And then, like, there you go. And then I looked at the labeling, and I was like, five crackers is 150 calories, and I just eat about 25. Yeah, like, right. Oh my god! Right. Oh well, yeah. I won't gain weight because it's gluten free. Yeah. Well, you see, the re- the research what the research on this is finally the independent researchers are catching up with what the marketers have known forever, which is that any kind of a health claim on food packages make people People think that it has less calories. Yes, no matter what it is. No matter is. what it yeah, is. Suddenly, to me, gluten-free is translating as calorie-free. In and fact, I don't organic, know where I got that. In fact, organic translates as calorie-free. Yes, I know. It's really weird. It's like this crazy group think that we all engage in. Yeah, well, the marketers know it. That's they why know. they're doing it. Yeah, it is. So how do you think in general, I mean, aside from these unfortunate um, hang-ups, do you think the Obama administration has taken enough steps forward in terms of certainly working with food corporations. I know that Michelle Obama has met with lots of corporate leaders about these issues, and it's not clear to me how much progress has actually been made. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think the story about the Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign has yet to be written, Mm -hmm. Um, and there's just not enough information about it that's leaked out into the general None um, into the I mean, general into the general. I wrote about it in the afterward to food yeah. politics to the extent that I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Obama started out with "Let's Move" in a way that just took my breath away. Yeah. I mean, she was speaking to the grocery manufacturers of America about how they couldn't keep marketing the way they were continuing to do so, and they had yeah. to stop marketing to kids in particular. And the um, White House appointed a obesity task force that came out with a whole load of recommendations on what needed to be done, and everybody immediately started working on them. And then the food industry kicked in. And one of the things that Let's Move had, the campaign had decided to do right from the beginning was that it couldn't really change any of this without partnering with industry. Mm-hmm. And so they partnered with industry. Mm-hmm. And there they are, up to their ears, uh, with Walmart and all of these other companies that yeah. are sponsoring this. And of course, they're happy to go along with anything focused on personal responsibility, individual choice. Yes. Um, and they're not very happy to go along with anything that requires them to change their products in any significant way right. or to stop marketing in any significant way. Right. So, there's a, so there's an impasse. Yeah. There's an absolute impasse. And, you know, I've, Walmart has come out with all of these things about the fabulous things that it's doing. We don't have any Walmarts in New York, so it's sort of hard to check up on them, but there is one in Ithaca where <laughs> I spend a great deal of time. Do you really? You go in to go it's, well, it's where my the Marion Nestle it's, police. It's where my partner lives. And so we go to Walmarts yeah. and check it out. And yeah. it's pretty shocking on the, you know, on the ground. 
I mean, the kinds of promises that they're making are not being translated into action on the ground. Is that you, right? You go into the store, and um, the big promotions are all for junk food. You can hardly find the little logos mm-hmm. that are uh, supposed to be on the healthy products. There's nothing in the store that pushes people to buy anything healthier. And the produce is just as expensive as it is at the Wegmans a half a mile away, where the quality is much, much better. Right, and often more uh, local. Uh, They're and quite off, good about that and stuff. often more local because yeah. they try harder on all of those things. So it's you know the food industry. I, you know the basic point about food politics is that the food industry's job is to sell more food, not less. That's it's right. not a social service agency. Everything that it does is designed to promote more sales of its products and higher profits. Yeah, at higher profits, or its investors get very upset. Yes, and you know until you have more organizations like. Um, as you sow, do you know that organization that like puts pressure on shareholders ah, yes. and boards to improve their and to take yeah. other considerations besides yeah. mere profit into their right. decision right. about whether the store. And that was are, another interesting thing yeah. about that Hudson Institute study, which I don't know if you read or not, but I'd be happy, happy to send it on to you. Is that they discovered that um, although initially a company might lose a little bit of profit uh, if they started really promoting or changing their their marketing or their products uh, in the long term, if they showed more quote unquote social responsibility, it was a better brand image for them, and they ultimately gained market share from it, which I thought was a fascinating... Yeah, I um, hope that's true. I'm not yeah. sure I believe it. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, they, um, you know, they obviously, that guy, Hank Cardulo is, is mm-hmm. right in the... Po- I mean, he worked with Coke and Pepsi and mm-hmm. Canada Dry and General yeah, Mills. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he, he's he, he no dummy. Um, what about things like soda taxes? I th- There was something there that I wanted to talk... I wrote something down, or rather, I, I quoted something from your... From your afterwards, yeah, I wrote about soda taxes and the Bloomberg soda cap in yes. the afterward. Uh huh. And let's move. Yeah, and food companies would use their financial resources to convince the public that environmental changes are manifestations of the nanny state and infringe on individual freedom and First Amendment rights. This goes right to the heart of the politics of this country right now. Oh yeah, where it's like mm-hmm. hand in glove with the with the gun, you know, with gun mm-hmm. control and and uh, so many other issues that are um, you know pending right now in government and. You know, it's all about, well, we're becoming just a nation of sissies and wimps mm. because we want the government to actually do its job. Yeah, what I love <laughs> about that argument is that it's so selective. Yes. Um, that argument is, loosed for, is used for policies they don't like. But, um, you know, I guess my favorite was the quotation about, um, you know, I don't want the government... Uh, messing around with my health care, just don't touch right. my Medicaid, as if yeah. that as if that had nothing to do with with government, with government policy. Right. So Crazy. it's selectively used. It's extremely hypocritical, mm-hmm. and it's often used by people who would defend the benefits that they get from government. Uh, to the limit. I mean, if we want a police force, if we want schools, if we want this government policy that does yes, this. if we want roads. Uh, we want roads. That's a good one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, your basic stuff. Like, Bridges. that stuff we want. And subways. Yeah. Please, that work. But, uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, God forbid that the government should say, you know, you can't really buy or you shouldn't really be doing this. I mean, uh-huh. we had such a successful anti-smoking campaign. It's interesting that we can't summon the political will to have a successful oh, anti-junk but these arguments campaign. were exactly the same that we they were the against same smoking. they're exactly yes. the same and now that's oh and also seat belts exactly yes. the same motorcycle helmets 
right. those kinds of things. These public, public health, health. These public, public health, health measures um, feel like this great infringement of personal f- freedom to a lot of people. But if you look at the effect on the society as a whole, it's much better for society Absolutely. as a whole not to have people sick and eating up the healthcare system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if everybody realized that it was costing them X number of tax dollars right. to fund, uh, you know, taking care of people who are severely diabetic or morbidly obese oh, yeah. or the, the raft of other health problems, if we yeah. had it broken down as individuals in dollars and cents what it's costing us, I think there'd be a whole lot more action on the part of the public about it. Well, I think that a lot of, of economists have tried to do that, but it's hard to know whether those numbers are done well or not done. I mean, they're yes. always based on a lot of assumptions it's very, very difficult to know. And it's very difficult for people to conceptualize externalized costs. Yes. You know, the cost of cleaning up the environment or the cost of paying for health care. Uh, you know, when our health care system is such a mess anyway, and it's not clear how the new health care law is going to get it implemented. It certainly isn't. Yeah. And even if it's going to be implemented, since a number of states have opted out of it or seem to be looking yeah. towards opting out. And what are and they're, of course, the poorest states in of the course. union, Alabama, the ones with the highest of rates course. of obesity and, and other health issues. Well, Marion, at last, we have uh, two minutes left. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about food politics and also about this fabulous new book that you have coming out in September. I'm very excited for you. It's a real departure for you. It's called Eat, Drink, Vote, An Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. It's a cartoon book. It's it's a cartoon book. You are so cool. <laughs> it's a cartoon. I love that. It's got about 250 political cartoons in it. And how did you find yeah. them? How, did you commission them? Or? No, 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 no. When uh, my book, uh, Why Calories Count, mm-hmm. has a couple of cartoons in yes. it, I had to get permission to use those cartoons. You can't just reproduce them. Right. And so that involved chatting with a woman named Sarah Thaves, who's the owner of a cartoon bank that represents 50 cartoonists. Wow. And in the course of our discussion about how much she was going to charge me for these cartoons, she said, and by the way, are you the person who wrote Food Politics? So I confessed that I was. And she (laughs) said, you know, I've always wanted to do a book using our cartoons on food politics. And I said, oh, let's do it. I think that is absolutely brilliant. Let's do it. So it's a partnership with the Cartoon Bank, and it represents the work of 40 of their 50 cartoonists. And she sent me 1,100 cartoons to choose from. Oh, my God, that's huge. Just, I mean, really, that there must were, have really been a were, chore to sort were, Oh, it was so much fun. I, I mean, sorting them in yeah. piles. And then I wrote text mm-hmm. to frame the cartoons. I let the cartoons speak for themselves. Um, but I write, I wrote, it's food politics light. Yeah. But it's kind of like Michael Pollan's little tiny book, yeah. you know, that he came, after the omnivore's dilemma about, you know, yeah, eat, he, he eat called, meat, not a lot, blah, blah, yeah, blah. He yeah, he calls it his book-like object. Yes. <laughs> so this is a book-like object. Yeah. But Rodale is the publisher, and they're doing they're it so in cool. full color. Oh, that's And it's awesome. going to be gorgeous. Yeah. It really is. I'm excited. Is. Well, you'll come back for that if not I'd be before. happy to. Yeah, that would be great. Well, it's 1.30, folks, and I'm going to give you one last moment of pledge. This is from my old WBAI days, where we used to say, 279-3400, 279-3400, and you know that was drilled into my brain. Because I remember that almost 40 years later. <laughs> but um, do, do look at our website page. It's a different parameter now. Look at our website page. Sign up. Become a member. And support this radio station. Uh, we bring you so much great information that you really will not hear anywhere else. I mean, Marion, sometimes you go on Leonard Lopate's show, and I always feel very jealous about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, basically, I think you and I have a much better conversation. <laughs> 
much as I love Lenny, he's also a BAI alumni. You know that, right? (laughs) So um, pick up the phone or dial in uh, your computer and check out our website and look at what you get for being a fantastic member of this radio station and sign up, pay the money, and do the right thing so that we can hear more programming like this. And thanks very much, folks. We'll see you next week with another fantastic episode of What Doesn't Kill You. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.